read a poem. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Shall We Read a Poem? I'm Russ. And I'm Lauren, your doom gloomer who likes to talk about cancer. <laughs> right out of the gate. Well, welcome to summer and... Um, content warning cancer. Content warning cancer. Well, you dove right in. Should we, uh, sh- sh- should we get to it? Sure, let's get started. So today I'm reading Chester. Chester come to school and said, Dern, I growed another head. Teacher said, it's time you knowed. The word is grew instead of growed. <laughs> and our illustration. Uh, it's a, a kid with his mouth agape looking at somebody as a, and speaking. Uh, and atop his head is a rather similar looking head, but with a more pointy rather than upturned nose growing out of it. And I d- and having worked in public education, I do like the implication that, you know, we're fixing grammar instead of noting the fact that this boy now has two heads. Right, right. I mean, I assume that's the joke of the poem is that we're like, ah, ha, ha. It's interesting that she says, it's time you knowed instead of knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I assume that, that she's making a point in what she's saying. This is not a commentary on public schooling, although we can turn it into one. But I this has a little bit. I'm assuming the teacher is female. We don't know. We don't know. You're right. That is that is very stereotypical of us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, you have something that you deeply want to talk about. Yeah. So last time we were talking about the Janus head in the poem Us. And uh, we were talking about having uh, also the, the sort of mythological creature that was a person named... I keep wanting to call him Mangrove or other things, but I can never remember his name. Mordrake. Edward Mordrake. Okay. Yeah. So he, as we described in the last episode, is this sort of fairy tale person, supposed to be a medical oddity, but not real, who had a female head growing up, female face growing on the back of his head, who uh, tormented him with her evil thoughts and speech. And... We don't know about Chester's head and whether it has a personality or anything like that, but I've had cancer on the mind a lot, so I was thinking about teratomas and how those are the types of tumors that have like hair and teeth and things like that. That seems the sort of thing that you really like, Russ. Uh, (laughs) They are definitely interesting to me, and I feel like going back into the history of things... Didn't they used to be like a panacea? Like, weren't they used as a cure-all back in the day? Like, if, if someone ran across a teratoma, it would be bezoars. considered... Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I think you're exactly right about that. I was wondering if this if, if this was considered one, too. I don't know. Wow. These are just... There are no better nightmarish pictures than those of teratomas. I guess we should probably describe what a bezoar is. Russ? Uh, it is it is a conglomeration of uh, hair and detritus that um, ends up in someone's stomach because um, hair can't be digested. Welcome to Shall We Read a Poem, where we read a poem and talk about medical body horror. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and unless they get particularly large, I don't think they're that big of a problem. No, I mean, not really. I mean, and teratomas, in... teratomas aren't always malignant either. They're just yeah, sort of po- horrifying. <laughs> but why is uh, why are these terrible things on your brain lately? Because uh, one of my friends was not quite diagnosed, but uh, almost certainly has a very, very rare and deadly cancer, 
and I just found out last week and so it's been cancers on my mind i mean i have had a lot of people in my life die of cancer my my most recently my father and my mother when i was really little and some people in between and like <laughs> i've started to feel like like i'm like there's some curse about me that, that mm. the people that i know are all going to like th- that i have to be in a perpetual stage of mourning and watching people i like suffer uh and that there's i'm not allowed to have peace from that and so almost like it's almost that i that i'm cursed with with like giving cancer to those around me hmm there is the you know survivor guilt such as it is and they say there's that one age where you stop getting new friends and just get to watch all the friends that you have, you know, die off of various reasons. But usually it doesn't happen until you're much, much older. Yeah, I just turned 37. Yeah, which is which is way too young to be seeing people drop off the map. Right. And I mean, most of the people that I know who have died of cancer have been elderly. Uh, I mean, my mother was only 39 and my friend is, is she is 44. But of course, like, we don't know. She might there are some people who have this type of cancer and they end up living disease-free. But we don't know, and it's scary right now. What does uh, the prognosis for this kind of cancer look like? Uh, well, it's since it's so rare, it's hard to say. The numbers are all over. There are some people who don't make it a year. There are some people who lived on past the point of them tracking. Uh, in general, it's three to five years. Well, all best thoughts to your friend. Yeah. Which I... is... A glib thing to say, but at, at times like this, words fail. Well, you know, best thoughts are better than not. Like, they, they can't hurt. I don't know if they can help, <laughs> but they can't hurt. I would say her outlook is realistically optimistic. Like, she's, I, I've, I've really admired how she's been handling all of this. She's been extremely proactive in her research. And instead of just, like, catastrophizing, like I think I often do, she's, she's, you know, seeking out people who have survived this and and wants to know hear more from them. And, and she's, you know, she knows what the numbers are. And she's like, hey, that might not be me. And that's really admirable. Indeed. Yeah. Do um, we want to pontificate on cancer or shall we discuss another aspect of Chester? I think I will be talking about cancer a lot. So okay. let's move on. And I'm sure it'll come up in another episode. Well, I wanted to uh, another aspect of Chester that I was going to mention. Um, and one of the things I liked about this poem was what misconceptions were you taught in school? Oh, mostly patriot. I can think of mostly patriotic stuff. <laughs> Like uh, people being patriotic heroes and being like, I will die for this flag, which I think is Betsy Ross, who is some critter who lived where I grew up in Frederick. And I I don't think she actually did that. But, you know, it's the local lore and, you know, very basic stuff like Thanksgiving. That's all not real. And mostly that sort of thing. I had the pleasure of teaching eighth grade science for a while and undoing the number of scientific misconceptions was eye-watering oh i want to hear some of them well my favorite one um why is the sky blue and so many kids were taught that it's because light reflects off the oceans i remember hearing that too 
That is mind-bending. Uh, for those of you listening, no, the sky is not blue because light reflects off the oceans. It's because that's the color wavelength that light refracts through the nitrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere before it hits your eyeballs. I mean, honestly, why... the sky isn't even usually blue. Yeah, and that's why the sky is red when it sets, and that's why it's, you know, you can't see through it when it's nighttime. There are only, like, these occasional picturesque days when the sky is blue. Like, especially in Portland, it's usually sort of a filmy gray color. <laughs> Even when you don't see clouds directly, it's usually just kind of gray. That is often the case in Vancouver. However, today it is blue like the most azure prism. It is blazing hot in Portland. It is 96 degrees. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. It's for terrible. We don't have air conditioning because before climate change, like you would get like maybe a week of weather in the high 90s or low 100s and that was it that was it it was over you suffered through that week the end not anymore you observed a fellow on a bicycle today that had a uh, unique solution for dealing with the heat (laughs) well i think he was doing two different things i think he was both trying to solve the problem of being hot but also i think he had to he had he was buying bagged ice and i think he needed the bagged ice for something in his house or something like that maybe he was gonna make a bunch of cold drinks i don't know maybe he had a cooler but he was bicycling with bagged ice draped around his neck like a stole and i was just i just looked at him like admirably like yeah that's that's a solution to the heat and not only that but like this is not an easy feat like ice is heavy and you have ice on around your neck that's gonna pull down on your neck and the balancing it is hard but anyway he was doing just fine and he saw me nodding and he patted his ice and he says this is the bling bling and i said Yes, that definitely is. That is the most beautiful necklace on a hot day. It is only in the low 80s here in Vancouver, but like Portland, we don't have air conditioning because why? This is the hottest it's ever going to get all year. And for the podcast, I close the windows and I am currently sweltering. (laughs) Okay, okay, Russ. Here's how it goes. This is how you deal with not having air conditioning. So you actually should have the windows closed, but... What you need to do is at night you open all the windows Mm -hmm. and you let the cold air come through. Mm -hmm. Then in the morning, as soon as the outside temperature starts to get a little bit warmer than the inside temperature, you close all the windows and shut all the blinds. Okay. So that you're trying to preserve the temperature that you had at nighttime. Understood. This is useful knowledge. Other things, hints I wish I'd known a long time ago is if it's too hot at night, sleep with an ice pack. Where? on your stomach or somewhere that like the blood's going to move by it i feel like that would get just rampantly cold yeah i mean i often wrap it up in something so it's just sort of like not not like freezing me but i can feel the nice coolness on it and i move it around (laughs) it helps it's like the cold side of a pillow yeah yeah exactly like that and it really does help all right i uh i have a poem today as well all right let's hear it And this is Band-Aids by Shel Silverstein. I have a band-aid on my finger, one on my knee and one on my nose, one on my heel and two on my shoulder, three on my elbow and nine on my toes, two on my wrist and one on my ankle, one on my chin and one on my thigh, four on my belly and five on my bottom, one on my forehead and one on my eye, one on my neck, 
and in case I might need them, I have a box full of 35 more. But oh, I do think it's sort of a pity. I don't have a cut or a sore. So tell me about this poem, Russ. Also, the drawing. Oh, yes, the drawing. The drawing is of a uh, wee child who, uh, as the narrative would hold, is just covered in Band-Aids. I assume Um, they're naked because kids really like to be naked and also he has Band-Aids on his butt. Yeah, kids do like to be naked. <laughs> so, I wanted. I, I did this poem for two reasons. One, because kids think that band-aids are just healing magic. And having worked in an elementary school for a time, if you have a kid that is crying because they've just fallen or something, regardless of whether or not they have a cut, you can just put a band-aid on them and tell them it's better now, and they agree with it and just sort of go about. It's sort of a ritualistic thing. Very much. Like, like the, this is how to introduce the notion of placebos if you're, if you're dealing with a small. Um, and additionally, the <laughs> cabinet-making establishment for whom I currently work has a Band-Aid budget because you have <laughs> never seen so many just diced-up fingers as in this, as in this place. And as well as as many tools for removing splinters. Ugh, I've got one in my hand. It's only a little one, so I haven't really messed with it too much. But, so it's like, it's not so big that it's worth digging in for it. But it also hasn't come to the surface quite yet. And I'm just kind of like, okay, splinter. Tiny ass splinter. (laughs) Where did you pick up this splinter, do you recall? Oh, yes, it was on my pantry shelf. I was, uh, I had dropped a lid and I went to go get it and got a splinter in my finger and then I was like fine you can have it and just left the lid between the <laughs> stove and the pantry shelf <laughs> is it does it sit there to this very moment it really does yes <laughs> I can have it and and it's there until I move out of this house <laughs> and I own this house so that's I was gonna say it's gonna it's probably gonna take a minute for you to move out of that house right <laughs> what this what this uh poem makes me think a little bit is about like bandage kinks Oh dear! All right, I'm going. Th- this is one with which I am surprisingly unfamiliar. Oh, I don't know a ton about it, but I've definitely seen a lot of Japanese art of like schoolgirls with bandages, especially on their head or or leg, but a lot of on their head, and them looking injured. And this is hot, I guess. I mean, you see it in animes too. You do. I wish I knew more about it, but all I know is that it exists. Yeah, I'm definitely going to need a deep dive on this one. Yeah, I want, I mean, it seems like it would be interesting to talk about, but I just don't know enough. I just, but I do think about it when this poem comes up. It does seem to have kind of its roots in BDSM a little bit, but like kind of a light version. Right. Well, so you think it's the bandaging is sort of like a bondage? Well, it, it, it not being one of my yums, I'm not exactly certain. I, I have Maybe. a feeling it's probably akin to a caretaking fetish. Okay, that make, that makes a lot of sense. Binders. Maybe a helplessness. Vulnerability. A little bit of the shibari thing happening. Hmm. Are you just looking through I, images? Uh, no, no, no. At, at, at this point, uh, any th- good this ones? was on a... Uh, any good ones? It's all, it's all cartoons because I'm on Healthline. Mm-hmm. I, do have a, uh, I do have an advice column uh, from Dig from 2017... Mm-hmm. Does my seven-year-old 
already have a sexual fetish for bandages. Maybe. My seven-year-old son started getting really into gauze, splints, and bandages when he was three, and by the time he was four, it became very clearly sexualized. <laughs> oh, gracious. <laughs> Let's goes, read the rest of it. This goes deep. Oh, keep reading. He, he gets aroused when he plays, quote, broken bone, or just looks at bandages, and he has expressed how much he loves to touch himself when he does this. My husband and I, brackets both happily vanilla, have been accepting and casual about this. We've provided him with a stash of supplies, taught him the concept of privacy and alone time, and frequently remind him never to wrap bandages around his head or neck. He spends so much time alone in his room doing his thing that sometimes I'm wondering, is it normal to be so kinky at such a young age? I know kinks generally develop from childhood associations. When he was two, he had surgery to correct an, an issue on his groin. It doesn't go into that. Might this have sparked this? Yes. I want my son to, gr I want my son to grow up <laughs> with a healthy and positive sexuality. Are we doing him a favor or a disservice by supplying him with the materials, freedom, and privacy to engage in a kink so young? Is there any danger in this honestly i think if anything like helps it not be a thing in adulthood is your parents being like eh, go for it like if it's not a taboo yes and this question was sent in to dan savage who pretty well agrees uh your son's behavior isn't that abnormal bandage it's pretty standard for kids even very young kids to touch themselves in public where it can be a problem or in private where it's still not a problem and lord knows kids obsess about the strangest stuff what's the deal with dinosaurs anyway <laughs> you know it might be a, right? like an oxytocin thing like if you have a lot of oxytocin when somebody is caring for you you might eventually start to associate that with sexual feelings and now, grown-up little boy, if you're listening to this, it is perfectly normal, and you just get all the gauze you need. I mean, I hate wasting things. I guess, if you're, I, guess <laughs> I guess if you get your rocks off, it's not wasting it, but... I was, I was say, surely that's not wasteful if, like, that's his thing. That's true. That's true. I'm being judgy. <laughs> and, it, and it is from this podcast that I learned the phrase, don't let us yuck your yum. Yep. I learned that from Oh Joy Sex Toy, which is a comic... Wait, that's a yeah, that's a webcomic. Yeah, it's a webcomic. Uh, it's done by Portlanders, Erica Moen want, and her spouse. I want to go. So this is later on in the reply. Even if your son isn't normal now, he'll be normal someday. And this may set your mind at ease. Most happy, healthy, well-adjusted adult kingsters can point to things in their childhood that seem to foreshadow their adult interests. Author, journalist, and spanking fetishist Jillian Keenan was fascinated by spanking in childhood. She likes to say she was conscious of her kink before she knew anything about her sexual orientation. So while your son's behavior may not be normal for a kid who grows up to be vanilla, it could be seen as normal for someone who grows up to be kinky. This comic tweeted out pretty much nails it. And this is a tweet from Aiden Raccoon, who uh, shows us that very famous scene from the Disney Robin Hood, where Robin Hood is all tied up. Um, and there's a little boy watching it, and he is saying simply, I feel weird. I wonder if Shell had any kinks. Oh, I am fairly certain I'm he, sure did. he did. He was, I, so I was reading a biography on Shell, and then I kind of stopped because it was ruining my, my appreciation of his poetry because he was, he, he was, a like, just, he was a member of the beat generation who just, like, were shitty to women, and I was like, and the author oh, who's writing the book wasn't doesn't like I don't think she examines that hard enough. I think if she I think if she approached the biography of Shell with with a little more criticism, then I would be more into the book than than I am with her just being like, Oh, he didn't really like women over twenty one. 
nor did he have relationships really, but as long as women could respect that, he would be friends with them. And I was just kind of like, okay. <laughs> this this sounds very questionable. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, I mean, he can be that way, sure, but like, shouldn't we talk about this a little bit more? Like, this isn't like a laudable thing, and this isn't, I, th- I like, I think it was phrased in such a way that, you know, women are the one who had to you know, accept this and, and in order for him to respect them. And like, definitely people who have things they want out of relationships should, you know, be upfront and get that. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like (laughs) it doesn't feel good to me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like their relationships were necessarily like the very transparent. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to judge people who who are aromantic like that's not that's not what I want to do I think I think just knowing how people the beat generation how they were just so dismissive of women and their talents I'm just like god damn it shell why you too and I have stumbled across an article maybe uh have you read this one the surprisingly sex-filled life of shell Silverstein I have not uh, by Melanie Ruiz and Sean Braswell. I can link it in the comments. But apparently he was pretty tight with old Hugh Hefner. Yeah, I do know that. I like this quote. You'll also catch sight of another distinct figure playing croquet shirtless, a bald man with a beard you have known since your childhood, but never really known. Just what exactly, you may wonder, is Shel Silverstein, author of Where the Sidewalk Ends, The Giving Tree, and other children's classics, doing in a highlight reel of the Playboy Mansion's most iconic scenes? I mean, I don't, like, a children's poet, like, you know, having a good time is not a problem for me. Like, I don't have any kind of moral objection to people having, like, consenting adults doing what they want. Like... The whole Pee Wee Herman scandal was complete bullshit. That was absolutely not was a such scandal. Bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but like, he's, we're with you, Paul Rubens. Yeah, like Shell was. It seems like w- like girls, like little girls, are are worthy of his attention, and he, you know, play. He has them in his books, and for them, they are, you know, their own individual people. And then once they turn into adult women, or you know, teenage women. Then suddenly they're, you know, things he can be fascinated with. And then once they get beyond like their early 20s, then they're just kind of useless to him. And indeed, isn't this podcast going to end up a study in separating the art from the artist? I mean, there's certainly worse people out there. (laughs) Like, (laughs) well, certainly. (laughs) Like, do you wear Hugo Boss clothes? He has Nazis uniforms, you know. Like, Shell still, like, was banging consenting adults. Like, there are worse things. <laughs> well, <laughs> the uh, this article closes quoting a uh, hug of war. Yeah. Just try to read his classic hug of war from where the sidewalk ends without summoning those sun- sun-drenched scenes of yore in Hef's pleasure garden. I can do it perfectly well without mm. summoning those scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Like I do well, think perhaps. I do think he sees children as children and when he's writing for children like sure like I'm sure there's some turns of phrases that adults only get but like he is he he does want children to be good to each other. Yeah. And this and this article isn't making like any kind of salacious statement like that yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It just brings it up. Right. I guess I guess it's like you as an adult think of 
him at orgies while you're reading Hug of War. Not meant to say anything about children, but as an adult, you can think of those orgies. I guess I could, but I still don't think I will. No, I don't think I will either. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Hug of War, Jesus.